As Pride 2021 comes to a close, one issue remains controversial, kink. People expressing their sexuality in public by dressing up, leather, rubber, furry, dom, fetish, and a whole other universe of expressions. They've been mainstays of parades and festivals since the earliest Pride celebrations in the 1970s. But as Pride celebrations and marches have evolved, some groups say the kink factor should go down, if not disappeared altogether. And the attacks aren't coming from the right. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today is June 28, 2021. The search continues for any survivors in the rubble of the 12-story condo building that collapsed last Thursday in Surfside, Florida. Former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin is sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison for murdering George Floyd. And Portland, Oregon expects its hottest day ever today with a forecast of 115 degrees. Death Valley says, meh. Today, we talk about kink, its role in pride, and how its expression there benefits those who partake and society in general as well. Our guests, a professor who studies kink and the president of San Francisco's Leather District. Yeah, it's a thing. Kink historically has been at the fringes of society, just like pride was. Although Pride is nowhere near mainstream, yeah, I mean, look at all the continued controversies in city halls across the country over the raising of a rainbow flag for June. It's now pretty prominent. Ads on social media and TV attest to that. So the debate over whether Pride should turn into a family-friendly affair by exiling kink back into the shadows is not some esoteric argument. It has real-world implications. From Stonewall onward, right, from the parades onward, it is always like that the sort of central characters have always been the kinksters and trans folks and people of color and, of course, the intersections of those folks. The people who have had most to lose are the people who have put themselves out in the streets demanding rights and respect. Joe Fischel is an associate professor of women's, gender, and sexuality studies at Yale University. He recently wrote an article for the Boston Review about the controversy surrounding pride and kink. Its title says it all. Keep Pride Nude. Professor Fischel, welcome to The Times. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. To start, how would you define kink? Oh, wow. Great question. I mean, historically, I guess kink becomes synonymous with BDSM, which has different uh, definitions with bondage, domination, pedomasochism is one of them. Uh, but I think most generally it is non-normative sexual practices in the most expansive way, which is to say plenty of heterosexuals practice kinky sex. I'm often associated with gay men, but not entirely often associated with, with leather and leatherware. Also refers to a subculture, like a subculture that has invested in practicing and thinking about sex that explicitly plays with power, power relations, um, and, and dramatizing domination and submission. Kink was accepted for decades at Pride, and it's still there. But now there's grumblings by folks in the LGBT community and progressive camps to kick kink out of Pride or at least severely limit its visibility. What are their arguments? As every article on the interwebs will tell you, the argument, the debate is not new, right? So since the beginning, there's been questions about who should be there and who can represent and what skin you can show and what skin you can't show. I'll say two things that I think are new about this iteration of the debate. One is, I'm not really sure it's a debate. I think it's a few vocal people on Twitter. And then the pro-kink lobby, if there was one, has, has responded rather vigorously to a few 
loud voices. I am one of those responses because I think even if it's not an, an army of anti-Kingsters, I think the critics raise questions that are worth addressing and worth um, exploring to think about the importance of a public sexual culture. The other thing that's different about this version uh, is that people are going to, it's a younger generation raising the criticisms and it's lodged in the language of consent. Uh, so it's not, you know, this is inappropriate, this is amoral, or this is gross, or keep it in your bedroom. This is, you're, you know, you're violating my consent. Like, I came to watch this and I didn't consent to this, right? So the language of consent, I think, is relatively new in this debate. I'm going to read the conclusion from the essay you wrote for the Boston Review. Uh, quote, we ought to celebrate kink, butts, and boobs at Pride. And we should do so especially for those kids whose opportunities and curiosities are stifled by racist violence, economic inequality, or their heterosexual nuclear family. Can you explain for us why you believe all of that holds to be true? Yeah, and I think this actually ties right back to the consent question, right? So the main arguments that I've seen are, you know, we're not consenting to this. I don't want to bring my children to this. Um, and I think that's powerful because now when we all, when we liberals, when we good liberals think about sex, we think about consent. And so intuitively, this argument is not, you know, outrageous. We're like, oh, yeah, this is about sex and we didn't consent, right? So that's one thing. It's sort of the difference between your body being assaulted or non-consensually intruded upon and seeing something you don't like. Again, that also, that language, the, the language of children and not seeing sex sort of resonates with us because we're all very concerned about, you know, children, children's sexuality, child sexual abuse. But I think that's the kind of argument that's hiding in the background that we should uh, neutralize. And so the point at the end of the article there is to say, actually, it's maybe kids who the most need to see forms of gender and sexuality expression uh, that they may not otherwise see because they're stifled by what? By economic disadvantage, by racial violence, simply by the kind of compulsoriness of their heterosexual family that, you know, they don't get to see other kinds of uh, ways of living and loving. We'll have more after this break. Professor Fischel, how does the fight over kink at Pride uh, spill over to the non-kink, non-Pride world? Part of why I want to nip this argument in the bud is that it does, in fact, affect all of us. And all of us uh, BDSM folks, from the most marginalized to the most sort of, you know, homonormative, gay, mainstream, uh, some might put me in that bucket. Um, and I think, you know, once you start going down this road of policing performances of public sexuality, where, you know, sexuality itself is being collapsed into wearing leather on the street, uh, you're living in a world that is really narrowly constrained. One of the arguments that I didn't have the space to make in the article was if you're going to be for sex workers and you think that prostitution laws are bad and you think that, you know, we should decriminalize sex work, I don't think you can uh, consistently hold that position along with, you know, wanting to get rid of kink at Pride. Why? Because very often it's sex workers are being criminalized for soliciting sex, for talking about sex in public, or, or merely right, walking while trans, or those laws, or, or sex workers having a condom on them. Right? So all of, all of these are part of sort of a, a universe of uh, rendering certain bodies, especially bodies of color, especially black bodies, as a sex in public. So I think the kind of the stakes for, you know, it's e easy to say, oh, why are we getting in a big huff about, you know, a tushy on a parade float? But I think the larger question is, are we really prepared to police all kinds of performances of gender and sexuality that we just don't like or that that causes discomfort? And that would be a sad world. Yeah, you mentioned in the article about sodomy laws that the policing of how people from the outside were offended by what was going on. And, and on that note, you also mentioned the intersection of the conversation with hypersexualizing of black communities. Why are those points important to know? 
So that first point about sodomy laws, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing from the work of my brilliant friend and colleague, Kendall Thomas, uh, a law professor at Columbia, who, who back in the early 90s made this point, which is like, you know, it looks like sodomy laws and the fight for sodomy laws is just to get the police out of our private bedroom behind closed doors, to which, yeah, most people say, but why were they there <laughs> in the bedroom behind closed doors? And so uh, Professor Thomas's point or one of his points is it wasn't just about that. It was the way in which sodomy laws were used to authorize police and civilian violence against gay and lesbian communities. The way that sort of sodomy laws render a demographic criminal on so licensed, bashing into bars, bashing gay people, and so on and so forth. And so I, I see there a kind of analogy to the work that Sadia Hartman beautifully, you know, written in, in her book, Wayward Lives, about uh, young Black women at the turn of the century in New York City who, one, didn't have, quote-unquote, private spaces for intimacy. So she sort of details all the different ways that Black women uh, found pleasure in a world that was not meant for them to have pleasure, right? And then also being in public, talking to strangers, or, or, or just socializing together on the street were often, you know, rendered as public sex or lewd acts. There seems to be a historical pattern where the kinds of genders and races and sexualities that are disliked are rendered hypersexual, are sort of made to be sex in public and then criminalize that. There is this debate. Maybe it's on Twitter. Maybe it's not as huge as some people make it out to be. But do you think that the critics right now, is they're going to they're gonna come to an understanding? They're going to continue their criticism? So, I mean, what I think is unfortunate about this debate is that the critics of kink are not really calling for the exiling of kinksters. But there's what I think it's more an exercise, as I say in the article, more an exercise in virtue or woke signaling to say, look, I'm against this and I'm taking a stand against kinky people in the world. And so I, I don't I think there are other issues at play that might exile non-normative, uh, you know, identities and sexualities from pride, like entry fees, like self-governing, so that like if a leather bar, you know, is worried about the police coming in, they might tell their constituents on the float to put some more clothes on. So there are all kinds of reasons, broader reasons why we might see more and more of mainstreaming and sort of the desexualizing of pride. But I don't think directly it's going to be about the critics. But I think it's important anyway to respond to the critic to say these folks are not hypersexual monster predators coming for your children. They're people who are proud about their, their intimacies and their love and their sex. And June is the, is the month to celebrate it. Thank you so much for this interview, Professor Fischel. Thank you. Thanks. We can't talk about pride without talking about San Francisco. It's home to the first Pride March on the West Coast, and it's the city of the martyred Harvey Milk, the first openly gay elected official in California. While there's so much history and stories to tell about this place, we want to zoom into one, the Leather District. It was established in 2018 and helps preserve the legacy of leather, not just a material, but a whole subculture, as a tool of expression, advocacy, and fundraising within the LGBTQ community. Joining me is Bob Goldfarb, He's a president of the Leather and LGBTQ Cultural District in San Francisco. Hey, Bob, thanks for joining The Times. Hey, Gustavo. Thanks for having me. So this has been a long fight for the community, this acknowledgement. Why is the acknowledgement of a Leather District so important? Well, the Leather District uh, has a long history here. We began locating in the Soma area in the early 60s. And it has been really the center uh, of the leather community in San Francisco. It's been the center of fundraising, events. Uh, it's become an international destination. 
The Folsom Street Fair is held here every year, which attracts about 400,000 people. And it has been really uh, a center for, for many things that make San Francisco unique and fun. What's your relationship to leather? I mean, you're the president of the leather district. So obviously it means more than just that personal relationship to you. You see something bigger in the fight for leather. Yes, I do. Uh, I've been a member of the leather community and active in the leather community for more than 30 years. And before I was active in its organizations, the leather community, I have to say, treated me very, very well and really helped me um, actualize myself and really helped me come to terms with who I really am as a person and my sexuality. Obviously, there's so many different communities, uh, identities of sexual expression. Let's get into some of those details, those expressions, the, you know, what, what people are into. That is a very broad question. And some people like to wear leather pants or leather vest. Um, you know, some people are into, you know, motorcycle style boots or tall boots or lace up boots. There are many, many different things. Some people like to wear chaps, which, uh, you know, originated for uh, motorcycle wearing. And when people say leather, it often means sort of a broader context that includes, you know, other types of clothing, whether it's neoprene or latex. There are companies that uh, make vegan leather. They use synthetic materials to create the look uh, of a leather product. Or it could be something as simple as the iconography of leather. Like, for instance, on my end, I've always been a big fan of Tom of Finland, this legendary illustrator who had, you know, the classic look of the motorcycles, the pants, the jackets, like Marlon Brando, basically, in the wild ones. Exactly. And I think that Tom of Finland went a long way towards sort of carving out that iconography and refining it in a way that was not actually expressed in the movies. And it became very specific. And I think that the popularity of his artwork really helped cement that as an icon for the community. The Leather District has long been home to bars and nightclubs. Can you share some stories about some of the businesses that make the Leather District so distinct? One of the businesses that is still here is the San Francisco Eagle. And they have a beer bust every Sunday. You can buy a cup and you get refills uh, either for free or for a quarter or something like this. The beer is flowing freely and the beer bust in, in and of itself is legendary. They have a large patio outside and on Sunday afternoon, uh, it is just really a center for um, fun, camaraderie and socialization. Unfortunately, a lot of these historic businesses have closed over the years because of gentrification. My colleague Maria Laganga wrote about this a couple of years ago. A lot of the leather shops, the bathhouses, there used to be more than 100 establishments, and now there's like about a dozen or so. So as president of the district, you have to negotiate with developers. How hard has it been to keep that character and history of the neighborhood intact? It can be quite a challenge. And if a business is threatened, that is a big issue for us. Uh, and it is very difficult uh, for us to uh, keep a business from disappearing, if you will. Uh, during the pandemic, we've lost two. And, you know, we are 
sort of, even though we've been around for two years, uh, we are sort of getting all of our programs in place and working with the city and developers. And we hope in the long run uh, that we will be able to stabilize these businesses uh, by buying real estate and so that we cannot be displaced. Uh, it's a long haul and a heavy lift, uh, but that is our strategy for the long term. And you see the leather community worldwide wanting to make sure that the leather district remains the leather district. Absolutely. Uh, it is such a destination worldwide, and it is really known as a center for the leather culture uh, that we do have a lot of support, uh, grassroots support uh, from around the world. Finally, social media has been filled with discussions that Pride now is not really family friendly, that the inclusion of anything sexual doesn't even belong at public events. And a lot of time they'll land on leather as part of that problem. And of course, this isn't a new discussion at all. What are your thoughts on that? I think the discussion is misguided. And, uh, you know, I don't know why these things come up, but Pride has from its very origins been a celebration and a statement behind sexual freedom. So to say that it is becoming sexualized, it has always been sexualized. That is the point. Uh, and you cannot split out different parts of sexual freedom. You can't say, well, you know, you can have sexual freedom for these people, but not those people. When you start segmenting people out like that, you all lose and the whole thing goes down. You can't say that, well, you can have, you know, gender freedom, but you can't have kinky freedom or leather freedom. It's, it's all or nothing. Thank you so much, Bob Goldfarb. Thank you, Gustavo. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, LA District Attorney George Gascon is facing a recall campaign over his progressive policies. The clash is drawing nationwide attention and a debate over what district attorneys are supposed to do. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Stephen A. Cuevas, and Denise Guerra. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our editor is Shawnee Hilton. Our intern is Ashley Brown. Our engineer is Mario Diaz, and our theme music is by Andrew Eatman. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news on this madre. Gracias. <laughs>